Section 11 of Brain and Personality. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Abrenica, World Audiobooks Podcast. Brain and Personality or the Physical Relations of the Brain to the Mind by William Hannah Thompson. Section 11. The Brain and Personality, Part 3 Throughout the preceding discussion, some persons may find it difficult to accept the demonstration of the personal will as an active agent in fashioning brain matter, because it implies that a purely spiritual agency, such as they imagine the will to be, can cause definite material effects. This need not be wondered at, because there is no one word about which the fogs of metaphysics have gathered so thickly as about this word will. We advise them to let metaphysics alone and turn their attention to the actual facts which we have been considering. A brain center used for speaking is certainly an actual material fact, or else it could not be destroyed by a pointed stick. How this material thing was made, we have shown to have been by a specific nerve stimulus repeatedly acting on the collection of the brain cells till it was fashioned accordingly. There is nothing exceptional about this, or so are numerous other nerve centers fashioned by their specific nerve stimuli. Thus a ray of light is a specific stimulus to the nerve cells of the retina, from which this stimulus is propagated by the optic nerves to the cells of the visual area in the posterior lobe of the brain. Now, the effects of overstimulation of nerve cells have been experimentally observed in animals by exposing one eye to strong light while the other was left dark, and then contrasting the appearance of the cells which had been overworked with those of the other retina which were kept at rest. The first effect of such stimulation is to cause the nerve cell to swell by absorption of the nutritive limb in which it is bathed, but as it becomes fatigued by the continuous stimulation, the cell shrinks, its nucleus becomes displaced, and at last the whole cell becomes disorganized into dead stuff. The chemical results of this degeneration have been studied and reported to be a change from the normal protoplasm of the cell with its phosphorated fat into choline and a non-phosphorated neutral fat. But this is just what happens to the nerve fibers and nerve cells in a small spot in the brain motor region, which orders the right thumb and forefinger to hold the pen. If the will does not let up on this order enough to let those motor nerves of the bookkeeper have a rest from its stimulation, we have a case of Rytel's palsy with the same degeneration of motor nerve matter, and as a result, total atrophy of both the nerves and the muscles which they supply. Here, therefore, the will has ended its activity with precious nerve matter turned into poor neutral fat, said fat being no more a thing of metaphysics than a tallow candle is. It is overstimulation in both cases but the stimulus of light comes from the outside and that of the will from the inside. But does the latter fact make the will less of a reality than light is, when it actually causes the same kind of physical and chemical changes? Another important conclusion is led up to by these facts, namely, that we can make our own brains so far as special mental functions or aptitudes are concerned, if only we have will strong enough to take the trouble. By practice, 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 as in Miss Keller's case, 
the wheel stimulus will not only organize brain centers to perform new functions, but will project new connecting, or as they are technically called, association fibers, which will make nerve centers work together as they could not without being thus associated. Each such self-created brain center requires great labor to make it, because nothing but the prolonged exertion of the personal will can fashion anything of the kind. He cannot do it by proxy, any more than he can make a new German shelf in his brain speech centers by proxy. He must do it all himself, though he may have to spend three years in Berlin for the purpose. A person therefore acquires new brain capacities by acquiring new anatomical bases for them in the form both of brain cells, which he has trained, and of actively working brain fibers, which he has himself virtually created. But nothing could show better than these facts the complete antithesis between personality and automatism. One might as well insist that because an automobile carriage goes along smoothly and mechanically, that the driver who makes the vehicle turn any number of street corners must also be an automation, as to say that a person who educates his brain is himself the automatic product of the brain which he educates. This series of facts which we have been reviewing demonstrates how the different places in one hemisphere come to subserve their mental functions by a process of education carried on throughout by one and the same teacher, for the process itself never varies. Moreover, it is plain that these highly educated areas in the cortex are not self-taught because they would not exist only in one hemisphere when the capacity for such education was certainly originally equal in both. But what is that teacher, and whence does he come? It is not easy to suppose that any part of the brain itself can act as such general teacher, because no cortical area ever interchanges its capacities with any other. If the ear grows dull of hearing, the eye cannot help it hear better, nor can the cuneus while indispensable for the education of the word seeing angular gyrus, which is a part of a visual area, furnish a damaged music center in the temporal lobe with a single note. But so persistent has been the hand for some cerebral place which created the personality that, since the rest of the cortex has been shown to subserve merely sensory and motor functions. It has been suggested that the limited portion called the prefrontal lobe C. Prontispice is the special mind seat in the brain. As this region differs from the rest of the frontal lobe in having no relation to motor and equally none to sensory functions so that it shows no signs of anything in particular when experimented upon, it has been surmised that it is related in its function to pure thinking or to the mind itself. It is also claimed that it is more developed in the human than in any other brain. The chief reliance for the support of this theory, however, has rested upon reports of the effects in man of accidents or of tumors or such like damage to this locality upon the mental functions. It is alleged that those who have suffered from lesions of this sort often change in disposition with a special enfeeblement of the power of attention and of thought concentration along with consequent apathy or mental dullness amounting sometimes to dementia. But just such mental symptoms often accompany damage to other parts than this of the brain, and all are equally susceptible of interpretation 
on the supposition of consequent derangements of the cerebral circulation, but to demonstrate that injury to the prefrontal region directly causes these mental symptoms, they should uniformly accompany such physical changes. This is so far from being the case as to lead Professor Schaefer to remark, so much has been made of certain clinical cases in which an extensive lesion of the frontal lobes was followed by diminution of the intellectual faculties and by a change for the worse in the general disposition of the individual, that it is important to ascertain what the clinical evidence on this point really amounts to. Welt has collected 59 cases of lesions confined to the frontal region in man. Of these 47 or about 80% showed no changes in intellectual capacity or character and only 12 of the total number, or 20%, had such changes recorded against them. It is clear, therefore, that the doctrine of spatial localization of the intellectual faculties in this portion of the frontal lobes rests on no sufficient basis. On page 63, I given the particulars of the man who had one hemisphere, and particularly its frontal part, destroyed by disease without affecting his mind at all. Fortunately, for him, as we have remarked, it was his wordless and not his word-endowed hemisphere which was involved. Likewise, a great difference is found in the accompanying mental derangements of frontal lesions, whether they occur in the wordless hemisphere when often there are no mental symptoms at all, or in the educated half. For the purposes of our argument, we might readily admit that the frontal convolutions can be taught important mental functions just as areas in the occipital and in the temporal convolutions are thus taught. But until it can be shown that the frontal convolutions think at all, whether they have been taught or not, that is, that the frontal lobes of both hemispheres work the thinker. All these speculations about them are vague. It is not improbable that the prefrontal convolutions of the educated hemisphere do play an important part in mental operations but that does not show that they are a whit less instruments than the angular gyrus is in its reading function, or Broca's convolution in its function. Of the four strings of a violin, string A is track offered than string G to make music, but string A does not make the other strings play, much less is it itself the musician. From some examples in my own experience, I would infer that one of the functions of the prefrontal convolutions in the speech hemisphere is the recognition of personal identity. A gentleman once consulted me in my office about some nervous symptoms. For reasons unnecessary to detail here, I began to suspect that he might be suffering from the effects of a brain tumor. But the most careful examination failed to show that any one of his special senses on being separately tested was affected in the list, nor could I find any motor derangements. His speech was well articulated, and he expressed himself clearly. Suddenly he said, Where am I? Am I here or somewhere else? Am I in the body or out of it? These remarks confirmed me in my suspicions that the probable seat of the lesion was in the left frontal lobe. Some months afterwards, my surmise was proved correct at the autopsy, when a tumor was found in that very place. We may remark here that the facts about the marvelous processes of education of the speech-endowed hemisphere naturally suggest the question whether the elaboration of so many interpreting or association areas with their consequent maze of association fibers 
would not in time increase the actual amount of gray matter its fibers in those localities where special work has been spent upon them by the individual. This may be difficult to demonstrate by our present imperfect methods of physical inspection of nervous matter, though functionally the difference is wide enough between a purely sensory and a purely motor nerve, so far we are unable to see which is which, and we have to irritate or to cut them to find out. So no inspections of the gray matter of the speech centers tells us any more of their very special powers than the inspection of any other locality in a given cortical area reveals what it does or how it does it. About the only physical sign of the kind yet demonstrated is the presence in the motor area of the cortex of relatively large and stellate-shaped cells which resemble in this particular respects at cells at the origin of the motor nerves of the spinal cord. But all analogy with other living textures would lead us to infer that the more a part was exercised and more it would grow in its special components and hence that the cortical layers of a man sharing fully in all the mental activities of modern civilized life would be more developed even quantitatively than the thoughtless brains of a Papuan savage. The only way in which such increased brain growth could occur in the cranial cavity would be by increased folding of the gray cortex with multiplication of its associating fibers. A few investigations of the kind have been made of the brains of men distinguished for varied mental acquisitions during life. And when compared with the brains of savages or of men of low or abnormal intellectual grade, they seem to show, though with some exceptions, that in the speech centers especially, the brains of highly cultivated men present much greater complexity in the convolutions with greater depth of the fissures. But though further investigations may demonstrate fairly constant post-mortem evidences in the form of increased cortical convolutions of a long life of exceptional mental activity, this would not prove at all that their subjects became eminent because they were born with such convoluted brains. While it is doubtless true that all individuals or our race are not born with equally good brains, Yet, the fact remains that the special mental capacities for which certain men have become eminent were all acquired and were not congenital. Hence, the utmost which can be considered is that the greater aptitude for acquiring may be congenital, but nothing more. Because, however, apt a man may be in learning languages or in mastering mathematics. He did not know a word, nor could he count two, when he was born. And if it had been possible to examine his brain when he was four years old, there would not have been found a single one of the complicated brain folds which we had when he was 60, because he made all this latter himself by persistent exercise. In other words, a great personality may possibly make a great brain, but no brain can make a great personality. To sum up, our subject deals primarily with material facts, hence it is in no sense a speculative subject because anatomical details are neither speculative nor theoretical and we have been concerned with the anatomical seats of mental faculties. We began with the physical anatomy of the faculty of speech which demonstrates that the reception, the understanding, and the expression of words depend as absolutely upon a special brain mechanism as the movements of the hands of a watch depend upon the spring inside. But much more than that, the particular anatomical seats of human intelligence 
are just as palpably demonstrable as the seats of human language. This so-called mind, areas of brain, matter are found grouped around the congenital sense areas, and it is by them that the human being knows what to think about the information which his senses bring. Cut out any one of those areas, and forthwith its kind of intelligence is gone. The most materialistic theory of the relation of thought to brain substance could not ask for more solid facts to support its contention. If only it could be demonstrated that these brain localities, with their matchless endowments, were as native to the brain as its sensory centers are. But no human being ever brought with him a single one of these wondrous places in his brain, nor ever inherited them. Yet, their existence must somehow to be accounted for. No question about physical life equals this question for surpassing significance. Not being native, that is, congenital, it follows that these seats of mental faculty must all be artificially acquired. It is equally plain that the process by which they are acquired must be the same for them all. However, different their functions be, because as an anatomical fact, they are all found in only one of the two hemispheres. This feature, therefore, puts an entirely new aspect on the whole matter. No longer can we suppose that the pair of symmetrical brain hemispheres in our skulls hold just the same relations to the functions of thought that the two eyes do to the function of sight, or the two ears to that of hearing, because if in a young person one eye be covered, the other eye does not have to wait for months before it can learn to see as its fellow did. Nor if one ear be stopped, for experiment in a person after 50, does its companion ear then prove to be totally deaf. Hence, while both members of the eye and ear organs are at all times just alike in their work, it is surely significant that with the two brain hemispheres, it is entirely different. So different indeed that no contrast could be greater than that existing between them in their capacity for mental work. It may be asked by some, if one hemisphere is not used for thought, then of what use is it? The answer is that it is of every use as far as motion and feeling are concerned. Paralysis and numbness or loss of sensation of the left side of the body are serious misfortunes to a right-handed man, though he still can talk and think as well as ever. Physicians frequently meet with striking illustrations of this one-sided habitat of the mind. A man who was one of the strongest thinkers and one of the greatest masters of English style that I have ever known, had his mind totally wrecked one morning by an apoplectic lap, but though he lived for months afterwards with his right brain hemisphere, apparently as sound as ever, yet he could not recognize the dearly loved members of his family, either by sight or by their voices. His intelligence was simply suddenly annihilated by the injury in his left hemisphere. The fact that his right hemisphere remained uninjured availed nothing because this exceptional musician had never played with that right violin. And now that it was 70 years old, it was no longer musical. Therefore, it is a power not of the brain because it is the masterful personal will which makes the brain human. By a human brain, we mean one which has been slowly fashioned into an instrument by which the personality can recognize and know all things physical, from the composition of a pebble to the elements of a fixed star. It is the will alone which can make material seats for mind. 
and when made, they are the most personal things in a man's body. In fact, they are the only examples of the kind in his physical frame, because though he cannot make one hair of his head white or black, he can and does make speech centers inside of his head, to say nothing of other centers of most varied faculty. So long, his brain matter has not become set, as potters would express it. By the lapse of years, he deals with his cortical gray matter by the purposive exercise of memorizing habit, as the potter deals with wet clay. And wondrously, does he fashion it, until it no more resembles the same gray matter on the other side of his head in mental capacities than unfashioned clay resembles a Portland vase. How could this clay itself make this pearless vase, as the educated hemisphere is the brain of man, while its fellow remains only that of the animal homo? Whence comes the incalculable difference between the two, considering that it is not brain which makes man, but man who makes one of his brain hemispheres human in mental faculties. We might even say that if a human personality would enter a young chimpanzee's brain where it would find all the required cerebral convolutions, that ape could then grow into a true inventor or philosopher. Note on Ambidextry Since the first edition of this book was published, I have received many letters, three from university professors of psychology, asking whether, in view of the fact that the centers of speech and for other purely mental functions are located only in the brain hemisphere related to the most used hand in early life. The teaching of ambidextry to children would not be a great advantage. Some of my correspondents seem to think that ambidextry learned early enough would lead both hemispheres to produce thought and thus increase the sum of mentality by the added activities of brain matter ordinarily unused. But this conception is negative by the psychological fact discussed in Chapter 4, which shows that pair organs are not so for the purpose of doubling or even of increasing faculty. We hear no more with two ears than we hear with one. Hence, no gain in mental capacity would accrue from both hemispheres being equally educated. The advantage, however, would be a real one if with both hemispheres educated, one of them should become incapacitated by injury in later life, for then its fellow would take its place without delay. But, unfortunately, it is very doubtful if the simultaneous education of both hemispheres is possible, the anatomical seats of mental functions not being congenital, like those connected with the functions of the eyes and ears. Their mode of genesis is totally different, as they are fashioned solely by the individual while growing in years. They remain personal to the end and hence can be neither hereditary nor transmissible. But this process of fashioning is so slow and laborious that apparently it is never attempted with both hemispheres, simply because the teaching of one answers all purposes. By a habit unconsciously begun in the hemisphere connected with the hand most easily used by the child, the habit continues for life unless the individual is forced by destructive injury to the first educated hemisphere to take up the training of its uninjured fellow. Instances of this kind are mentioned in Chapter 6, page 124. But nothing short of such necessity will induce a person to cross over to the sound but hitherto unused hemisphere to begin teaching it, because such an undertaking would be literally teaching everything from A, B, C up. 
We may remark here in passing that the fact of its ever occurring at all shows that this migration to the other side is another evidence of the independent existence of the personality. In such a case, to return to our original illustration, the two hemispheres were like two violins lying together in the same cranial box, and it was not until the musician found the one which he had been exclusively using irretrievably broken that he then turned to the other one and after some trouble made it fit to play with. But he alone accounts for the second violin become musical at all, since it never vibrated with a single note until he took it in hand. Left-handed children are often compelled to become ambidextrous by obliging them to learn by practice to use the right hand as freely as the left. But, however, advantages this may be in some respects. It is doubtful if such training extends to anything more than the movements of the hand muscles themselves. The one hemisphere which was first led to talk and to think will keep on doing so irrespective of ambidextry, because the hand did not create a speech center, but only served to start its first beginnings as such until it became a habit, which experience shows cannot be changed. I have been asked by a professor of psychology whether obliging a left-handed child to use the right hand may not delay its learning to speak. By confusing the normal process of development, in its right hemisphere of speech centers. I am strongly inclined to believe that this may happen from a case in my own experience of the only left-handed child in a family of four sons and three daughters. Her left hand was tied in early childhood till she used the right hand well. But whereas the other children learned to speak early, one sister remarkably well at only 15 months of age, she was fully six years old before she could talk plainly though in all other mental respects, she was in no way behind any of the rest of the family. End of Section 11 Recording by Maria Brenica, World Audiobooks Podcast